And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to our show this week. I hope everyone enjoyed the previous episode where we took a look at Son of Godzilla and Marvel Comics Godzilla number 20. We have a jam-packed episode for you this time. First off, we are taking a look at not one, but two episodes of the classic Tsuburaya TV series Ultraman, episodes 19 and 20, featuring the monsters Vanilla, Aberus, and Hydora. So very, very cool Showa television stuff there. We also have the next issue of Marvel Comics Godzilla, which is issue number 21. And um, after the strange turn with Godzilla being shrunk down in New York and then now dealing with the Fantastic Four, do what strange occurrences are in store for the King of Monsters in the Marvel Universe this time? Well, just give a listen and all will be revealed here. Uh, we have a couple items of news, not much this time out, but some things I wanted to share. First off, NECA, well known for uh, producing... Uh, very fancy Godzilla toys. They are producing a 12-inch head-to-toe Godzilla 1962 figure. Now, this uh, Godzilla 1962, of course, is the iconic look of Godzilla from King Kong vs. Godzilla, a long-time fan-favorite design of the King of Monsters. Now, uh, this figure will stand at 6 inches tall at the head, and as I said, is 12 inches from head to head to tail. I may have said head to toe, but head to tail is 12 inches long. Uh, retail price is $27.99. It's going to be available in October. Um, NECA, normally any place that you can get uh, orders from previews, you can order their stuff. Uh, also, they often show up on Amazon and Big Bad Toy Store, so uh, check those listings. You might be able to find a pre-order. I was not able to find one as of the recording, uh, but they should be cropping up soon enough. Hat tip to Sci-Fi Japan for this information. Very cool-looking figure. Godzilla 62 is a, a, obviously a very popular look, and NECA does a good job with their sculpts at a, a reasonable price, and they do have some articulation in there as well, so uh, should display nicely on uh, your shelves filled, of course, filled to the brim with other Godzillas, right? Because uh, that's what we do. And in a bit more obscure news... Kaiju Mono, the mashup of Daikaiju and Puruwesa, starring noted Japanese wrestler Kota Ibushi, is available on Blu-ray in the U.S. thanks to Sentai Filmworks. Now, this came out in uh, 2006. Uh, this is its first legitimate uh, Western release. I know there have been some bootlegs floating around. Chances are you've probably seen something about this film on Facebook because it looks bizarre. It, and it is bizarre from everything I understand, featuring a giant monster and then a scientist that injects a normal man with these experimental injections that makes him grow giant. And it's Kota Ibushi. So it's Kota Ibushi wrestling, literally wrestling with this giant monster. It's it's bizarre and wonderful all at the same time from the looks of it. I have not seen this one. Uh, but again, it's just so neat to be able to get a legitimate uh 
above board uh, U.S. Blu-ray release. So if you can go to TutureFreaks.com, hit that Amazon link and pick it up. It is available on Amazon right now. Uh, looks really cool. I'm going to be adding this one to my library and hopefully we'll be able to talk about it. Uh, going forward here on Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, plenty of news out there about uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, but nothing we haven't already covered. There's lots of tidbits leaking out as we get closer to the release date, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And if you come across any uh, news or other products or any cool stuff that you think would be uh, worthwhile sharing here on Earth Destruction Directive, go ahead, send me an email, Directive at yahoo.com, and I will share that with everyone else. Uh, so with that being said, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back to get into the first of our two episodes of Ultraman right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Image Comics, formed in 1992 by several creators unhappy with their current place in the industry. So they band together to make a new comics company for a new generation of readers. Creator-owned, Mutants, cops, black ops government agents, demon-possessed, and they are going to be the greatest comics ever. In April of 1992, the first issues hit the stands, and fandom resounded with cries of... Pouches? Why are there so many pouches? What? You don't like pouches? All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast, is one fan's exploration of those early years of Image Comics. Youngblood, The Savage Dragon, Spawn, and more, with maybe even a few pouches along the way. So come give a listen at johnreadscomics.com. That's John with no H. Just so you can spell it right. Okay, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman, episode 19, entitled The Demons Once More, on the DVD title list, also known as Evil Repeated, the DVD on-screen sub, and Demons Rise Again, per ultra.wikia.com, first aired on November 20th, 1966, on Tokyo Broadcast System in Japan. Uh, the director was Samaji Nanagase, writer was Masahiro Yamada and Ru Minimakawa, and the special effects were by Koichi Takano. Construction workers unearth a strange metal box, millions of years old, inside of which is a vial of an unknown blue liquid. As the science patrol takes the liquid to be studied at a laboratory, the other content of the box, a vial of red liquid, is unwittingly taken to a dump site. That night, when the red liquid is struck by lightning, the monster Banilla suddenly appears. At the lab, the science patrol works on translating a metal document from inside the box, while the scientists experiment on the blue liquid. Unfortunately, they apply a large electrical current, and the liquid turns into the monster Aberus, who smashes his way out of the lab. Too late, the document reveals that the red demon and blue demon were sealed away by ancient man because they were unstoppable monsters. The two monsters begin to track towards each other, meeting at the Olympic grounds. They battle fiercely, but Avarice gets the upper hand and uses his acidic foam to dissolve Vanilla. At this point, Ultraman intervenes and brutal combat begins. In the end, Avarice's thick hide means it takes multiple shots from the specium beam, but Ultraman is victorious and the two demons are gone forever. This is actually one of my favorite episodes of the original series, very action-packed. 
uh, nonstop sort of thing, and uh, always a treat to get more than one monster in an episode. Uh, so let's get right into the notes. First off, the monster Banilla. I have also seen this translated as Barilla with an R sound instead of an N sound. Um, uh, to me, Barilla is a brand of pasta here in the United States, so I don't mind it being Banilla. But it is, once again, an, an example of the confusion sometimes of taking Japanese names and translating them to English, especially when they're not, um, you know, they're, they're monster names or names of things that are not a human. You know, we know how to pronounce uh, given names because we hear them. They're, they're common, whereas these are obviously made up names. So uh, I'm using vanilla. That is what is on the, uh, the subtitles on the DVD. And it sounds more like vanilla when they, uh, in, in the Japanese language track. And then on the English language track, they also call them vanilla. But I've seen it translated as barilla also. Same monster. We've talked a few times previously that you sometimes get differences between the, the subtitles and the dub. This is a good example here. When the, uh, the box is unearthed, carbon dating in the sub says it is over 300 million years old, whereas the dub says 900,000 years old, slightly less than 1 million. Now, why the difference for this, I'm not sure. Uh, 300 million does seem a lot, considering the plot of the story deals with ancient man. 300 million years ago, I'm pretty sure we can all agree there were no men, <laughs> as we understand the human race to be. 900,000 years ago, certainly. So, uh, I, th I think that may have been a, um, I don't know, just trying to really make it old on that, uh, on the, on the original language. And then the, uh, uh, the dubbers deciding that that was a bit much, um, I'm not sure on that one, but that, that is a very good example of a change that doesn't really have, doesn't really impact the story overall, but it is a change in, uh, a plot point based on, uh, the subtitle versus the dub. I really like the construction site since it appears to be an alive, active construction site that Subarai's crew just went out and filmed at. Uh, I, I'm, in the course of my work, I'm very often on active construction sites, and so uh, it's it's funny to see the things that have changed and the things that have not changed. So that was that was neat. And again, it gives a level of authenticity to it. It's not a, a soundstage or a uh, you know a, a recreation of a construction site. It appears to be an actual construction site, which um, you know plays very well and looks very authentic on the screen. Of course, the two monsters are red and blue. Uh, the red demon and the blue demon, very uh, common motif, especially in uh, in Japanese uh, literature and uh, trope. In fact, it's a blue, red oni and blue oni, very popular trope on tvtropes.com. Another trope here is the advanced ancient civilization, in this case specifically name-checked as the Mu Empire. Now, the Mu Empire, you, you may be familiar with it, the Mu Empire is the roughly the eastern equivalent of the myth of Atlantis that we think of here in the West, and that they were this ancient island-based civilization that had this wonderfully advanced technology that a great cataclysm hit and they sunk beneath the waves and now they are lost. Now the Mu Empire does crop up a few times in other Daikaiju um, uh, films and TV shows. Most notably, the Mu Empire are the villains in the film Atragon, which uh, features, you know, the Gotenko, the big uh, flying submarine, and the monster Manda, which we will be covering eventually here as one of the non, um, you know, I say not, it's one of the non-Godzilla Toho Daikaiju movies, even though Manda later would be folded in uh, to the Godzilla series. But the Mu, you know, it being the Mu Empire would be, I said, the rough equivalent of saying, oh, this uh, looks like Atlantean technology, with the idea of Atlantis being this mystical lost uh, civilization. 
Now, Ide is overly enthusiastic to help out on the uh, scientific investigation of the box to the point that it's it's played broadly for laughs, and the, the and the captain shoots down his enthusiasm and tells him basically to, to focus on his job. We're starting to see very much the transition of Ide from being he's still comic relief, but he is he is still he's more in that phase where he's comic relief and the scientist, and his enthusiasm and eagerness to help out the the crew of scientists is demonstrative of that. He would continue on this path for the remainder of the show. This is very close to what Ide is like for the we're we're at the halfway point now of the show for the rest of the show this is how i always picture e-day behaving with very few exceptions so it's good to see that here another change between uh the, the original and the dub is back at headquarters when the uh fuji gives the weather forecast about the electrical storms this is a storm that ends up hitting the red liquid and forming the monster vanilla uh that report is given to arashi arashi in the original, Arashi responds to what her report is, but here, um, Fuji basically says, oh, we're getting something, and then Arashi gives the the forecast, which I don't really understand that change, other than, I guess, they didn't want the girl to have a line, because, you know, it's not like Fuji's out here, um, you know, being real action-oriented, she's just getting the weather report and reporting it, which uh, you would think would be, you know, not offend, uh, you know, mid-60s American television sensibilities, but for whatever reason, it was changed. Um, speaking of the monster Vanilla, now Vanilla is red with orange and yellow trim. He has ridges on his limbs, kind of like Red King, but it's a lot less pronounced. He has two tails, which trail behind him, and then he's got a long neck ending in a pointy head, which is kind of like a piggish sort of snout. He's not one of the most memorable designs, uh, of the Ultra Monsters, but he's in line with the other ones from the, this series. He certainly doesn't look out of place. But he is not the better of the two designs, and he is not a more memorable one of the, the you know, more popular designs. Vanilla, uh, as a concept, does appear in, in later episodes. I want to say in Ultraman Powered, um, Vanilla appears. And in fact, they, they remake this episode, and it was one of the ones they remake in Ultraman Powered, but his design's a little bit different. Um, it's all right. He's not great. Um is that there's not a ton of merchandise out there with him. I think that belies that he is not an overly popular monster. In the laboratory where they are experimenting on the blue liquid, they bring in an electrical beam, and it has uh, it's like a little tripod-mounted job, and it's got a, a, a triple barrel on it. This vaguely looks like the business end of the A-Cycle light ray uh, from Monster Zero, which came out a year prior in 1965. I don't think it's an intentional nod to the A-Cycle light ray. I think it's just that, you know, Subarai and his crew were making these weapons and stuff, and that looked futuristic in the mid-60s, so it looks sufficiently science fiction-y to use in a science fiction film or television show. I just like the connective tissue. You know, we've talked about before that there's this kind of pattern you can trace from, like, the atomic heat ray to the A-Cycle light ray to the Maser tank, uh, and even throwing the Markalite cannon in there as well. So this kind of fits vaguely in with that, that this thing exists to, um, you know, conduct large amounts of current. But this is a not a weapon, this is a tool, it's a laboratory device, so obviously it's much, much smaller. This, of course, leads to Aberus enlarging and smashing out of the building, actually growing up and smashing out of the building, literally. Uh, very cool effect, by the way. I'm always a big fan of that. Now, Aberus is a repainted Red King. He's now kind of a seafoam, greenish-blue color. 
and he's got a new oversized head, which is like the exact opposite. Remember, Red King had a really small head, so now he's got a really big head, and it's kind of shaped like a Tyrannosaurus. It's got a big horn on the front, though, maybe like a Ceratosaurus, I should say. This works really well together, the big head with the big limbs, because it really seems to fit. That's this big predator-type monster. He does have a feeling, though, of that's familiar, because that that kind of rough skin texture that Red King has is plain on Aberus. So it, it does, you know, kind of, of will always kind of remind you of Red King. The head helps a lot though. And, and I, Aberus is more popular than vanilla. And there is a much more merchandise that I have seen for Aberus than for vanilla. You would think that if you made a vinyl, let's say of Aberus, you would make one for vanilla. So you could buy the two of them together. Right. But Hey, what can I say? I don't know. Um, now his weapon uh, you know, vanilla breeze fire, the red one, that makes sense. What Aberus's weapon is, is he sprays acidic foam. So he's shooting like a foam out of his mouth and it looks like bubble bath, you know? So it just kind of bubbles all over everything and it, it'll dissolve things that it's, that it's touching, which is kind of a nasty weapon. Uh, I want to say is that, that there's a dragon in the old D and D monsters manual that shot like a poison like that, that, that was like acidic. Uh, I'm probably misremembering that. Hopefully, a listener out there can correct me on my D&D dragon mythos. Uh, and Avarice gets to go in a legitimate city-smashing rampage because he, uh, you know, Vanilla awakes out in the middle of the, um, kind of out in the outskirts, and he gets attacked by the JSDF and destroys some jets. But Avarice gets to actually smash up some buildings because he's in the middle of the city when he enlarges. So that was a nice um, uh, approach to have them the two monsters appear in different locations and then they had to go towards each other. And the upshot is that we get some nice city smashing scenes, which they don't always get to do on Ultraman because it wasn't always in the budget. The basic plan of the Science Patrol would get echoed many years later in the Legendary Godzilla because it's essentially let them fight. They're going to go towards each other and fight and hopefully one will destroy one of the, the other one. And so you only have one monster to deal with instead of two. And they're just trying to limit the collateral damage. So I thought that was really amusing, is that ultimately, giant monsters want to fight each other. Sometimes you have to just let them do what they're going to do and take care of it, and then we'll come in and mop up. Uh, to the point that, you know, we, we see this even in, like, the other Showa Godzilla films, like in Terra Mechagodzilla. That's essentially the, uh, the Black Hole Alien's plan, is to let Godzilla and Titanosaurus fight until Godzilla is has killed Titanosaurus, and then they'll come in and mop up with Mechagodzilla. So there must be something to it. Arashi brings out the Mars-133 gun for their uh, encounter with the with the two monsters. This is uh, a larger version, sort of, of the spider shot. It still shoots out the, the squiggly line attack. Uh, but again, Arashi gets to break out the heavy weapons. That is his role uh, on the Science Patrol as a heavy weapons expert. So I thought that was uh, very cool to see. And continuing that trend, we would see more of these special weapons again as we continue. Now that we're halfway through the series, the special weapons come out more frequently. Uh, I think that once they were part of the toolbox that the writers had to work with, it became something they could use and just use the same props over and not have to create something new. Fuji, of course, is left behind at the base because we can't have a girl going out on a mission. That would not be right. So. The two monsters meet at what Fuji calls the Olympic Grounds. Now, Japan hosted 
the Summer Olympic Games in 1964, two years before this was released. This was the first Olympic Games hosted in Asia, actually, which I thought was very neat. I did not know that. Now, the Olympic grounds, as they are called in this episode, appear to be National Stadium, which was in service from 1964 through, through on till 2014 and then demolished in 2015, not 1966 as you know, portrayed here on the show. This was the site of the opening and closing ceremonies for the games, as well as the majority of the track and field events, and uh, was home to many international soccer matches uh, for uh, that the Japanese national teams would play in over the course of its uh, uh, 50 years in service uh, in Japan. Now, interesting aside about the 1964 games, those games saw the introduction of both judo and volleyball two sports which are hugely popular in Japan and still are till this day. And, appropriately, Japan won gold in three different judo events and took home the gold in women's volleyball. I just thought that was that was wonderful because I only learned a couple of years ago about how popular volleyball is in Japan. And it explains retroactively why there's a fairly large amount of volleyball games made by like Nintendo and Sega back in the days because those were games that were developed for the Japanese market that were relatively easy to translate and bring over. Volleyball is volleyball, right? So it, it does not a lot of localization differences. So I just thought that was rather nice that they added these events for their host country and then they won them, which would have been delightful to the Japanese fans in attendance. Uh, the Olympic grounds model, I think, is really nice. You know, it, it's a big open stadium and obviously no one is there because there's no event going on, so there's no one there, but they do a really nice job of making it look like a realistic uh, stadium that, of course, uh, Avarice and, and Vanilla then smash to pieces, because that's what they do. Once they're at the stadium, there's a really well-put-together optical composite shot where we see the monsters fighting in the background in the stadium, and we see the humans being deployed into the stadium. They're running in different directions in the foreground. So I thought that was really well put together and well executed uh again fish on a tv budget now it's not a not a long shot it's only a few seconds but as i talked about on the last episode with son of godzilla and then a few episodes back with godzilla versus the sea monster when you successfully do an optical integration and put human-sized figures in the foreground and then the monsters in the background it really does sell the scale and it always reminds me a bit of like harryhausen's dinorama you know, the, the whole point of Dynorama was not so, not just that it was the stop motion. Stop motion, obviously crucial. But the idea of taking, uh, that Harry's would take a live action background plate, then the special effects plate, and then a live action foreground plate and sandwich them together so that you had the special effects and the live action interacting together on the same frame was, uh, you know, is what helped sell a lot of those creations. And it works very well to much the same effect here. Arashi, after using the Mars-133, then breaks out the atomic missile pistol, uh, which shoots a atomic-powered rocket uh, from a handheld pistol. Somehow, I'm not sure how that works, but it's awesome anyway. Uh, this will come into play later in the series. You heard it here first, so uh, keep a lookout for that. Uh, from the fight, Vanilla is in a bad way. He is getting uh, housed, as the kids say, uh, by Aberus, and then gets dissolved by the foam. He gets absolutely covered in the foam and dissolved into goo. Yuck. That's all I have to say about that. Just nasty. Uh, shortly after that, Hayata changes to Ultraman and then appears and engages Aberus. Now, 
Aberus shoots his FOMO over Ultraman, and Ultraman is frozen in place. And then the color timer goes off. Now, I'm not sure if this was the intention, but what I read this as is that Ultraman was fighting very, very hard to overcome the paralyzing effects of the foam, which is why he's exerting so much energy that his color timer goes off. Because you can think that, okay, he's trying to overcome the paralyzing agent, so he's struggling mightily, even though he's not moving, because he's desperately trying to work his muscles in order to get himself to be able to move. Um, and then with the color timer going off almost immediately at the beginning of the fight, you can see Ultraman go right at Avarice and be just really striking him over and over and over. And it's almost like a, a, a desperation flurry to try and hurt him because he doesn't have much time before the color timer is going to go, uh, go dark. And then Ultraman, as you know, will, will never rise again. Uh, the finish of this fight is really something because Ultraman breaks out the specium beam and you think, okay, that's it. Well, Avarice no sells it. So he gets hit with the specium beam, no sells it, and then shoots back the foam. Ultraman dodges, so he fires a second specium beam, and Aberus no sells it again, and again counterattacks with the foam. Ultraman once more uses his speed and agility to dodges it, and then finally the third specium beam, kaboom, that is the end of Aberus. And it's like, that is a really, I mean, that puts over Aberus as a real tough dude, absorbing three specium beams, which is, that's really something. So he is definitely a tough cookie, and uh, Ultraman had his, his uh, work cut out for him. Now, as is very common in a lot of these episodes, they wrap it up quick. Aberus is beaten, Ultraman flies off, the end. <laughs> there is no resolution, there's no plot that has to be wrapped up, so they can just push it out to the last few seconds, and we are done. And the episode is over. Now, uh, I have here, I have an email from friend of the show, collaborator, and noted Midwestern cheapskate, Professor Allen, who sent me some pre-feedback on the episodes, and I wanted to incorporate that here. And uh, Allen writes, last episode you mentioned what Ultraman episodes you'd be covering next. I figured I'd watch them and send some pre-feedback. Or if you've already recorded, then consider this regular old-fashioned feedback. Well, you made it in under the deadline, so here's what Allen had to say about episode 19, The Demons Once More. Pretty good location shooting, such as the Science Patrol in their vehicle and the other vehicles and dump trucks. That's one of the strengths of film versus video. Film tends to always look more modern, while video and special effects tend to age more quickly, at least to my eyes. I thought the location for the final battle was great, an empty stadium. I'm sure it was selected because it was an easy model to make in film, but I think it worked very well. And boy, did it seem to end abruptly, at least on the DVD. I also like the lesson or moral of this one. Always read the instructions for opening the mysterious blue liquid. Very much so. And how many things would be would we have uh, avoided over the years if we just read the dang instructions instead of just flying off the handle? But that, that's that's not the way we do things as humans. I agree about the um, uh, using National Stadium. It looks wonderful and it's so different. Uh, you know, you do see stadiums occasionally in Daikaiju films, but this one is just such a unique look. It's this giant. Uh, you know, traditional oval stadium with the track around it and all that. It really comes out nicely on the uh, uh, for that that final encounter with uh, Avarus and Vanilla, and then Ultraman fighting Avarus as well. Uh, Action heavy episode, as a, as as you've no doubt caught on, plays sort of like a little miniature Daikaiju movie with two monsters on a collision course, and then kind of fits in the Ultraman format at the end with Ultraman coming in. Uh, for the last uh, bit of fight. It's got a good use of recycled elements to make the new monsters, 
And I like the thematic use of red versus blue, fire versus foam. It's kind of a classic matchup. A uh, good amount of miniatures getting walloped, especially, as I said, National Stadium, which is a unique setting so far in the series. We also got, as I said, Aberus uh, kind of bashing up some buildings in the city, which we don't always get. Ide is over the top in his comedy this time out, and he's pretty annoying. But overall, the action quotient more than makes up for any of the shortcomings. This is, as I said, one of my favorite just straight-ahead, balls-to-the-wall episodes of Ultraman, and it was a pleasure to get to rewatch it again. Now, if you would like to watch this episode of Ultraman, I would recommend going to TwoTrueFreaks.com, clicking on that Amazon.com link, and going and picking up the Mill Creek DVD set for Ultraman, the complete series, which is $16 for all 39 episodes in both English and Japanese with subtitles. I think that is a great value. I've talked about that numerous times on this show before. Uh, so if you want to watch Ultraman, that is your best bet. It, If you search on Prime Video, it shows up, but then it says it's not available. And it's not available on Netflix, and I don't believe it's on Hulu. At one time it was, but I think it's been taken off of Hulu. So uh, just get that DVD set, though. I mean, for you're getting... I mean, you're getting almost 20 hours of entertainment out of it for 16 bucks. I mean, that's pretty good deal. And Ultraman for 16 bucks, that's, I mean, to me, that's, that's, that's a, a good price for, uh, um, you know, a, it is a fairly bare bones release, but the, the video looks about what you'd expect for a show of this age and they're complete. So that, that alone makes it worthwhile to me. So what do you think? Uh, you want to be like Professor Allen? Send me some feedback. What do you think about Aberus and Vanilla smashing everything up before, um, Ultraman comes in and stops uh, Abris from wrecking up the place. Send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with our second episode of Ultraman here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman will be right back after these messages. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase. But then again may have about a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search on iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember... We're not experts. We're just family. Now, back to Ultraman. And we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman episode 20, entitled Terror on Route 87, which is the uh, DVD listing and the listing from ultra.wikia.com. 
also known as The Dreaded Route 87, which is its on-screen title, first aired on November 27th, 1966 on Tokyo Broadcasting System in Japan. Our director was Yuzo Higuchi, our writer Tetsuo Kinjo, and our special effects once again by Koichi Takano. Strange lights begin to flash on a mountaintop near a nature park decorated with the statue of a dragon. The statue was designed by a boy named Akira, who was killed in a hit-and-run accident on Route 87. Akira appears to Fuji in Science Patrol HQ, but after the Science Patrol investigate, the monster Hydra explodes from the mountain. Hydra begins attacking trucks on Route 87, so the Science Patrol scramble in their aircraft and take him down. When they are unable to stop him, Hayata transforms into Ultraman and challenges the dragon. But before he can land the final blow, the monster flies away with the spectral image of Akira on his back. Fuji pleads with Ultraman to spare them, which he does. In the end, the driver who hit Akira is arrested, and the highway is peaceful once again. Bit of a change of pace from the last episode here. Certainly not uh, as high on the action quotient, but a worthy episode in its own right. Let's get into the notes. Um, now, right near the beginning, the not-yet-revealed-to-be-a-ghost-of-Akira shows up at the Science Patrol HQ. Uh, the rest of the Science Patrol are out investigating the weird lights at the mountain, and so Fuji is on her own at the HQ. Again, naturally. Now, what I like here is that Fuji assumes that this must be one of Hoshino's friends. Now, Hoshino does not appear in the episode, but she goes, oh, are, are you Hoshino's friend? So I, I really thought that was a clever bit of writing, using the established continuity of the show that Hoshino you know, is obviously a, you know, a kid and that his friends have been known to hang out with him and that one of his friends might be going to the science patrol for help. So even though he doesn't appear, they, they use that continuity. And this show was not always good about continuity, but a little bit of it right there, just in one line, I think is well used in this situation. Now, as I said, the monster's name is Hydora and on the that that is how his name is pronounced in the original. Now, on the dub, they clearly call him Hydra, and I think that is the intention that this is his name is supposed to be Hydra. The name Hydra would get used later on, much later on in the anime series Transformers Master Force, as Buster and Hydra were the two Godmaster Decepticons. That's Dreadwind and Darkwing. Uh, for us American Transformers fans. So I'm, I'm not sure if the Hydra has any particular significance. Um, the, there is, you know, the Hydra we normally think about as a multi-headed dragon from Greek myth, and Japan has their own mythological multi-headed dragon with Orochi. So I'm not sure what the significance of using the name Hydra, but it's clearly that's what his name is supposed to be. And, and I'm fine with that because he is a dragon and the Hydra is still a dragon per se. So I'm okay with that. It's just, it, it's, it's neat. Because you take a name that is, okay, not, not the most unique or individualized name. Because you say Hydora, and I immediately think of Hedra, the smog monster. Uh, but say you call his name Hydra, and that's a neat name. And it's a, a name that's easy for Americans to pronounce. So I think that was the intention of this, the dub, was to take the name and make it uh, very Western and uneasy for the Western audiences to understand, and I actually quite like the use of that here. Um, the statue in the park was built off of child submissions, and this was, I thought, was interesting. I've seen this several places um, in, in Japanese pop culture, kind of a common theme. I've seen it pop up over the years, uh, designing monsters or robots for 
uh, for a toy line or a game. The ones that spring to mind immediately is that in the Mega Man games from Capcom, a lot of the later Robot Masters were designed by contests. And in fact, uh, almost always uh, only in Japan. The only one I can think of is Mega Man 6. Uh, two of the winning designs were from children in North America. I want to say Blizzard Man was by a Canadian uh, submission and Night Man by an American submission, which I guess is appropriate. Um, but so the idea of them, them taking child submissions to make this big statue, I, I thought that was uh, appropriate. And it fits the theme of the story that the uh, you know this this kid Akira loved all these monsters and this one monster he designed this dragon Hydra is the one that ends up becoming his um you know essentially his guardian his spectral form whatever you want to call it uh his avatar if you will so you know it, it's it's not the most creative or unique approach but I think it's well done here and I'm okay with that so I thought that was well used in the screenplay here uh Akira uh the science patrol finds out has uh, was killed, and that means that the one who appeared to Fuji is a ghost. Kind of heavy stuff for a kid's show when you get right down to it. Uh, you know, this idea that this kid was hit by a truck, and the guy drove off, and now his dead ghost is appearing. So it's like, hmm, that's a, that'd be a bit touchy today. I don't know if they would let him get away with that, but, you know, what do I know? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm no judge of modern television, certainly. The Birth of Hydra. Now, they go at night, so the science patrol goes to the mountain at night so they can witness the lights, and the lights start going off, and then we get the it, the mountain starts to rumble, and it becomes a rock slide. We get this dramatic lighting as Hydra bursts out of the mountain and, and wriggles his way free of all the rock. It's very nicely done, very dramatic, especially at nighttime with the kind of harsh light and darkness. Uh, the science patrol, of course, being the science patrol, takes a couple of shots at him. Hydra counters with fire breath. Uh, right back at them. Again, shooting this at night, it really does look um, as a very dramatic, as the best way to put it. I mean, I think it's uh, a good, memorable sequence because it's shot at night, and it's it reminds me kind of like when Rodan is born, and he cracks his way out of the egg because it's this big, winged monster smashing his way out of his home. So uh, the birth of Hydra was a high point of this episode to me. Following on after that, um, Hydra, we see him swooping down and snatching trucks off of Route 87. The story begins to take shape as far as, you know, this is him trying to find the, uh, you know, the perpetrator who was the one who hit Akira. And so he's taking it out on all of the trucks on this route until he can find the one that was guilty. I did some research. I was unable to locate a Route 87 on um, anywhere in Japan. It may have been that the roads may have been renumbered in the interim, uh, so I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, I, if the title of the Japanese one was not literally, you know, including route 87, I would have assumed that this would have been added in the dub, but no, it's right there in the Japanese original. So I'm just not sure what road this is supposed to be, unless it is, uh, specifically a non, uh, you know, a fictional road. So they're not referring to one specific area. Uh, this leads to the science patrol engaging with Hydra, a very well put together high speed dogfight with, uh, you know, the jet VTOL and their other flying machine, both attacking, swooping around, attacking, and then Hydra swooping around and, and charging right back at him. I thought this was a, uh, a well-orchestrated and, uh, uh, assembled dogfight. You know, uh, that, that can be tough sometimes because, you know, you don't have a lot to work with on these, uh, on a, on a TV show relative to in a film. But this, this one came off well. And again, it's one of the better scenes in this episode. The monster scenes in this one are, for the most part, well done. It's just, it, the story is a bit odd. 
And so that's why I don't think this one has caught on as much as the story's a bit strange and a little one, um, you can only kind of play it one way, whereas the monster bits, taken on their own merit, are, are uh, quite nice. The jet VTOL gets knocked out of the sky, uh, so Arashi uh, kind of improvises as they, they drive a fuel truck at Hydra, knowing he'll grab it, and then he shoots the fuel truck, blowing it up, turning it into like a firebomb to, to wound Hydra. Really creative use of the stuff you got around him. I'm sure the owner of the truck is not happy, but hey, you know what? Sometimes sacrifices got to be made if you, unless you want every single truck driver snatched off the road and smashed. Ultraman then shows up on the scene. Hydra comes right at him, no quarter given. He attacks with a lot of pecs, kind of like Rodan. Again, like uh, in Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, or in uh, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 93, Rodan attacks Godzilla by trying to peck him really hard. Uh, and Hydra kind of uses that same... Uh, same attack. It's violent hand-to-hand combat here. Uh, Hydra does not use his flame breath to try and burn Ultraman, really. He just kind of grapples with him and is wailing on him with his wings, and Ultraman's trying just to grapple him and throw him away and try and get some space. There's no quarter given, so it's a, it's a brutal fight, even if the actual engagement is not that long, and it doesn't involve the, um, you know him using his, his special powers. It's just Hydra using his brute strength. Um, once Ultraman gets a little separation. He fires the specium beam, but Hydra dodges it. He flies straight up into the air and dodges it. That was a nice uh, way to put over the speed of Hydra, since he's been flying around the episode. We know he's pretty fast, but again, reminding me a little bit of Rodan, who uses his speed as one of his main weapons. Hydra kind of does the same thing here. Uh, then we see Akira's ghost riding on the back of Hydra. Uh, which is an optical where the translucent uh, image of Akira is on his back. And then Fuji pleads with, out loud, for Ultraman to spare him. And Ultraman shows mercy and does not kill Hydra. I let Hydra and Akira just fly off. This was, to me, one of the uh, the, the most salient points about the episode is that, you know, uh, and I've had this discussion, and we've talked about this here on the show before, and I remember having this discussion with my my sons a while back, is that what is Ultraman's purpose. His purpose is to protect humanity. He does this by fighting monsters, and often monsters have to be destroyed, but his function is not to kill monsters. And so when he has an opportunity to show mercy on a monster that either is, uh, you know, not in control of itself or is not actively trying to attack, he shows mercy. And I think that's a very kind of noble and heroic trait rather than always blasting the monster. Now, admittedly, it is relatively rare, so but all that means is that it stands out more when he does it, to the point that in Ultraman Ginga, one of Ultraman Ginga's special attacks is called Ginga Comfort, and Ginga Comfort is designed specifically to show mercy to the monster that may not be in their right mind and is not wanting to cause uh, destruction or, or you know fight, but is you know otherwise uh, motivated to do so by something external. So I am always a fan when we see uh, scenes like this where Ultraman shows that he could be a merciful warrior in addition to a brutal one. Uh, story then is wrapped up with the driver who had Akira getting arrested. Um, Fuji and the other science patrol are at the statue and they kind of give a coda to the episode and uh, you know, wraps it up uh, pretty, pretty nicely. And I think that's part of it is that because this story is so personal with Akira, and Hydra is such a personal monster with Akira that you can't really reuse him in the same way that you can reuse some of the other Ultra monsters. Hydra is very much tied to this story, and so it becomes hard to 
bring him back for a big monster scene or something because of he's not even not even somebody like Jamila who doesn't get reused a lot and is tied to a very personal story but Jamila is still a mutated human he's still a you know a a physical monster whereas Hydra is this representation of of Akira's subconscious that may or may not have been in fact there's a line where they they suggest it might have been like an archaeopteryx you know, a prehistoric monster that a uh, creature that may have lived in Japan and thus would have a homing instinct to know where to go. But th- that's kind of only paid lip service to the intent. The intent appears to be that this is, you know, some some spiritual connection between monster and, and boy. So that, like I said, that makes it hard to, to bring Hydra back. Um, Professor Allen sent some pre feedback here and uh, for episode 20. And Allen writes a sufficiently creepy episode, kind of sad with a theme we've seen before of the power of a child's imagination. And that's a good point. We saw this back with uh, Gabadon, um, that they, the kid's imagination was able to bring the monster to life. That's a really good point that I did not pick up on when doing my notes. Alan continues, I love that there wasn't a, quote, formula to Ultraman, other than the last few minutes of transformation and battle, but the tones varied, the types of stories varied, camera techniques varied. There was a lot more going on with the show than I ever noticed when I was eight, other than that it was awesome. So glad your show has given me a chance, excuse, to revisit these classics from a bygone era. And I'm glad it is, too. But that's a really good point also. And we've talked about that again uh, previously covering Ultraman is that there's there's a wide variety of types of stories and the way the stories are shot because they've got different writers and directors working on each on any given episode uh, so that you get different types of stories being told. And I think that's one of the strengths of the Ultra series in general is that, yes, ultimately at the end, you will have Ultraman fighting a monster, generally speaking. But the build-up to that is its own little science fiction show. And that part of that is, of course, the origin of the Ultra series with Ultra Q, which didn't even have the formula of Ultraman fighting a monster. It really was kind of this X-Files-style paranormal investigative show and as such required new types of uh, stories to be told each week and not did not have a formula per se other than uh, they're going to go and investigate what's going on. Uh, Hydra is not a bad monster, but as I said, the premise is a bit much, even for Ultraman. It's a little silly for the grown-ups and a little heavy for the kids. I don't know. May- maybe I'm underestimating the target audience here uh, as far as the idea of, a, of a, uh, the ghost of a dead child coming back and you know how they're helping create this monster. Uh, Lord knows I'm not the target audience, so, you know, what do I know? It's a good fight at the end, if a bit short. As I said, not a real surprise that Hydra did not become referring recurring foe. And I always appreciate, as I said, when Ultraman shows mercy to his foe who deserves it. Uh, so as I said, the creepy story is a thing I'm going to really remember from this one is that, you know, it's this, uh, you know, kind of dark, uh, ghost story, really. And, you know, uh, you know, the Japanese, they do like making their ghost story movies, so, um, so that, that's the main takeaway for me with this one, more so than anything else. Even though there is some good monster scenes, it's a story that kind of carries a day here. So if you watch this episode, what do you think of Hydra and Akira and their, uh, you know, uh, quest to get justice for uh, the uh, the great crime done against the boy uh, that led to his death? Uh, write, write in. Let me know. We're at DestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. We can talk about it right here on the show. All right. I am going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with more right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Eons past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, 
now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla number 21 was released by the Marvel Comics Group. It's cover dated April 1979 and released on or about January 16th, 1979. This information comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Uh, our cover is by Herb Trimpey and it depicts the King of the Monsters Godzilla battling that other famous Marvel reptile, Devil Dinosaur, in a prehistoric wasteland from the looks of it uh, godzilla has devil pinned down on his back with one of his feet up on his chest uh, devil is clawing back with one of his feet right towards godzilla's throat godzilla's blasting with atomic breath uh, narrowly missing moon boy and we see a, a a band of warriors coming in from the background the cover title says cover copy says godzilla battles the raging might of devil dinosaur in the doom trip very uh exciting action-packed cover here uh our writer this time is doug mench our penciler herb trimpey inker is daniel green letterer is irving watanabe colorist is ben sean our editor is alan milgram and our title is the doom trip and our synopsis is adapted from marvel.wikia.com with Godzilla knocked into a shark tank, the Godzilla squad and the Fantastic Four fish out the monster and knock it unconscious. Reed Richards then suggests that they bring the monster to the Baxter building. There, Reed uses Dr. Doom's time platform to send Godzilla back in time. In doing so, Godzilla is transported to the world of Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur, where Godzilla meets and battles Devil Dinosaur. However, when the Lizard Warriors come to invade Moon Boy's home, Moon Boy manages to appeal to Godzilla to help him to stop the invasion. Next issue, side by side with Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy in the battle in the Valley of the Flame. Plus, the return of the Fantastic Four and the most spectacular surprise ending of the year. Well, this is very much a tale of two issues. Uh, there are two stories, one that ends and one that begins in this issue. And uh, they are very definitely uh, have different levels of appeal to me as a reader. So let's get right into the notes. As I said, the cover is action-packed uh, with the two monsters battling it out with uh, volcanoes smoking in the background and a horde invading behind them. Uh, the heavier inks are used on this. I'm not sure who the inker is. I could not find a credit for that. And there's nothing that I can ascertain from this cover as far as a signature to, to tell me who the inker is. I suspect it might be Daniel Green, who's the inker on the inter interiors, but I'm not 100% sure on that. In any event, the heavier inks here really do give kind of a Jack Kirby vibe to this cover, especially on Devil Dinosaur. We see a lot of the skin texture. We see a lot of heavy inks on his head and on his back, and then some even on his stomach. And this really does give a sort of Jack Kirby feel to it with the black ink uh, to you know, really sell Devil Dinosaur as being, you know, obviously a Jack Kirby creation. So I don't know if that was intentional, but it certainly gives that impression to me. Once again, we have Moon Boy and the other humans to give a good sense of scale. Uh, it's worth mentioning Godzilla is not back to full size yet, but he's still as large as Devil Dinosaur, so he is a good deal larger 
than any of the human figures. Uh, the only bit I don't like in this cover is the sky is white. And we have some, some black hatching on it and some gray smoke from the volcano. And I don't really care for the white. It, it stands out nicely against the yellow and red logo, the Godzilla King of the Monsters logo. But I, I can't help but feeling that it's a little plain back there. We got a lot of color on this, on this cover. So I'm not sure what kind of color you'd use, but even maybe a pale blue might have been a little bit nicer on this. But overall, I really do like this cover. This is a, a very nice um, clash between two very, uh, <laughs> uh, very uh, near and dear to me Marvel monster characters. So, uh, page one, our splash page. Um, the Godzilla squad and the FF are looking at Godzilla in the shark tank. Everyone's back is to us except Godzilla, and he's in the background. Uh, he's still thrashing about with the sharks in the shark tank. This is, uh, honestly, this is a kind of boring splash page. The printing, I don't know if it's just the printing or if it's heavy inks or what, but uh, Ben Grimm, I had to really look hard to see where his face was because he looks just kind of like an orange blob hanging off uh, the upper platform on the, the top left of this panel. Um, yeah, it, it's made, this may be the least interesting opening splash page we've gotten this entire series because... You know, Godzilla being attacked by sharks, as I said the last time, does not hold any threat or concern for me as a reader because I don't think that great white sharks have anything that they can do to even a shrunk down Godzilla except try to bite him, break their teeth, and die from radiation poisoning. So this did absolutely nothing for me. Pages two through three have the great benefit of having Ben Grimm punching sharks, which is wonderful. That, uh, you'd say, hey, Luke, you gonna buy this comic? I don't know. It's got Ben Grimm punching sharks. It's like, okay, I'm gonna take a look at it. So I'm totally down with that. What I'm not down with is Godzilla is completely ineffectual. Ben Grimm jumps into the tank, punches a shark, tosses Godzilla out, and then Reed smothers Godzilla and knocks him unconscious. It's like, one, why didn't you do that last time instead of having Sue try to do it when you were reaching your arms through a force field so Eric could still get in? Okay. Secondly, I, I don't know. I mean, is the unstable molecules protecting him at this point? I don't really know. I, this to me is, I was not impressed with how, like I said, ineffectual is about the only word I can use Godzilla is in the first part of this story. And that really kind of bugged me. Now, again, Ben Grimm fighting sharks. I'm okay with that. And that's actually some of the nicest stuff in the early parts of this book. Uh, on page three, panel two, he gets a, a right cross with a quad right on the nose of a, of a great white. And if you ever watch Shark Week, you know you punch him right in the nose. That, that hurts him. And then the shark tries to bite Ben in the ankle and breaks his teeth with a cracked. And uh, uh, Ben says, eh, I guess they got teeth enough to spare. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Later on down the page, uh, page uh, panel four on that same page, as Ben is popping out of the tank, he says, sheesh, somebody ought to tell these stinkers that sharks are out of date. The new thing is flying saucers and Pillsbury Doughboys. Now, I could only assume that this is a joke about Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Jaws came out in 1975. Close Encounters was 1977. As I said, this was published very... This came out on newsstands January 79, so it means it had to be written in 1978. I took a look at the top grossing films from 1978. Uh, the top three were Grease... Because we all know Grease is the word. It's got mood. It's got feeling. Superman, which obviously they're not going to reference in, in a Marvel comic. And Animal House, which I get the feeling that if Marvel could, they would have published an Animal House comic. Uh, but for whatever reason, that never came to be. There is, uh, down at number seven, was actually Jaws 2. 
but there's no UFO pictures in the top 10. So is this a reference that I'm missing or is, is this supposed to be a dated reference? Because it would seem that with Jaws 2 having been one of the top grossing films, but no UFO pictures that uh, sharks would not have been out of date. The Flying Saucers and Pillsbury Doughboys would have been out of date. So I, I don't know. Maybe this, like I said, this, is this, this might be something that, something topical that I'm just not connecting on because, you know, I wasn't born when this was written. So spoilers there. Turning over now to page six, uh, panels two and three, Godzilla is trussed up and toted out of the museum and put onto the fantastic, the fantastic car. This, for all the world, looks like the classical stereotypical image of the native porters carrying the results of a hunter on a safari. You know, they've got Godzilla trussed up and he's being carried uh, by, it looks like about 10 men carrying two long poles. And then the poles are then hitched underneath the fantastic car and he is driven off. Um, uh, uh, yeah, that this frankly is a little disrespectful to Godzilla as a character. And at this point, I think that the end of the series is in view for Mensch and Trimpy. I've talked about this before that I believe it was Mensch or, or Al Milgram or I forget who was telling the story exactly, but that they, they, they had the Godzilla license on a yearly basis. So they had bought it for a year and they were sad, you know, they got pretty good ret return on it. And so Toho upped the price a little bit, uh, but it was enough that they were willing to do it. So they bought it for another year and then they were coming up to renew it and Toho had upped the price enough that Marvel said no. So at this point, I wonder if that, right, you know, by the time this is published, that they're aware that, okay, it's going to end. And they're just trying to, to fill out the story and get things moving along. I can't imagine that anyone at Toho would be okay with this depiction, but everything I've always read says that Toho had absolutely nothing to do with the editorial content of this book. So I don't think it really matters one way or the other. Like I said, looking at this, I, this really kind of bummed me out. I did not like Godzilla being carried out like a, uh, you know, like a, some, some great white hunter had shot a, a, a lion or a rhino in an old safari picture. It, I mean, it's, it, I guess it's, it's kind of amusing in the contrast of Godzilla being in that situation, but I didn't think it was, it treated the character with a lot of respect. Now there is one part of this sequence that I really like. Now they're flying back to the Baxter building in the Fantastic Car and Dum Dum Duggan is riding along with the Fantastic Four. So this is the kind of the, uh, uh it looks kind of like a jet sort of Fantastic Car where there's a car in the front and then there's the body with the two turbines and then two wings and then a car in the back. And Reed Richards is sitting up front with Dum Dum Duggan, which means that in the back seat, you have Ben Grimm, Sue Storm, and Johnny Storm all crammed in together. From panel five, we're looking down on the top, and Ben is in the back of, like, his back's against the, the upholstery, and then you see Sue and Johnny, and it really looks like Sue and Johnny are sitting each on one of his knees, which is absolutely hilarious. You know, <laughs> that's got to be an uncomfortable ride from the American Museum of Natural History back to the Baxter building, you know, and then having to sit on Ben's lap, essentially. I mean, if it was just Sue and she had to sit on Ben's lap, I don't think Ben would complain about that, you know, pretty hot blonde sitting on your lap. But now Johnny's also got to sit on his lap and you know that Johnny's going to give him grief about that. So I, I, that really, it, they don't call any attention to it. You get the feeling that in a, in a modern comic, this would have been, there would have been a little bit of gag dialogue with this, but that really amused me. <laughs> oh boy. So turning over now to uh, page seven, panel five, Godzilla is hung up with some rigging underneath his shoulders. 
uh, above the time platform. And again, the less said about this, about the the way that Godzilla is treated when he is unconscious, uh, the better. So I'm just going to move right on. So over now onto page 10, where Reed activates the time platform. Now, a few pages earlier, back on page 7, it was called the Time Machine. And I may be remembering this incorrectly, but I always thought from uh, reading uh, Iron Man that Dr. Doom's time uh, was called the time platform, not the time machine. I, I might be wrong on that. It has been a few years since I've read some of those Iron Man, Dr. Doom stories uh, where they travel back to Camelot. Uh, Doom Quest. It's 150 and 250 are the two that stand out in my mind. I, but that, that, that having been said, I do like that it is depicted in kind of the traditional manner with the platform rising up and the subject disappearing as it rises up. So in panel two, you just see the energy of it starts to light up. Panel th uh, three, it's up to Godzilla's mid-thigh and everything below has disappeared. By panel four, it's right at his snout and his shoulders and everything is gone. And then panel, uh, um, uh, five here, I'm sorry, has it at the top and he's completely gone and you just see Reed saying it's done. So I thought that was really nice. I want to give a shout out to two podcasts I listen to, two of my favorites. The first being Back to the Bins on the Two True Freaks Network and the second being the Fantasticast on part of the Flickering Myth Network. Both of those shows in the past year or so have talked about Dr. Doom's time platform and that exact depiction of how it rises up and the subject disappears. So I, I want to give a shout out to both of those shows to talking about that because it was fresh in my mind when I read this. And so I appreciate the way that Trimpy uh, portrays it in that you know very traditional way. Over on to page 11, uh, the third panel has Godzilla falling through different eras. And this asks the question, is he also falling through different dimensions? Now, when this was published, Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy, their setting was considered ancient Earth 616. So they took place in Earth's regular Marvel Earth's far prehistoric past. Now, later on, it was determined that they actually were on their own multiversal Earth. So they were on their own Earth. So the question becomes, retconning this and looking back at it, does Godzilla not only fall through time, but also fall through dimensions in the multiverse and end up on Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy's Earth? The no prize way that I kind of subscribe to for this is that Godzilla's radioactive uh, biology interacted in some unpredictable manner with the time platform, and that's how he got pushed into a different dimension. So if you're going to no prize it, that's the way to do it. The way when this was written... It was just time travel because Devil and Moon Boy were just on regular Earth, Earth 616. The panel I like a lot here is because it, it almost looks something like you'd see in a Doctor Strange comic because we see this kind of fractured uh, background behind him. Godzilla is, is all right in the center. And these fractured backgrounds behind him are all different colors. And there's no, uh, they're, they're all clean like straight lines like it like it looks like the fracture of like a crystal but each one is like different colors and different backgrounds one looks like space one's bright orange they've got different geometric shapes in them and such uh, there's one that godzilla's all blue one that he's kind of a pale ice blue for that little fracture so i thought that was a neat way to depict godzilla spiraling back through time over now on to page 14 and godzilla has arrived in the prehistoric world. And now things begin to pick up because this is a, you know, it, it's, it's a different setting for Godzilla, but also one that really seems to fit because we're operating on the concept that he was, you know, a mutated dinosaur. So a prehistoric world makes perfect sense. The narration boxes throughout this segment are really, really fun. And, uh, Mensch really does a good job 
of kind of putting over the thought process of Godzilla here, putting over and the idea of Earth in this primordial form where nothing had been tamed, and that Godzilla feels the need to uh, explore it, and, you know, he has a sense of familiarity, and he climbs up on top of a mountain and roars his defiance. It's a nice little sequence of Godzilla going, you know, part of the idea of monsters is that they don't belong in our society because the famous quote from Eji Tsuburaya that they're too too heavy, too tall, too strong. In this world, Godzilla fits in. He belongs here in this, this you know world that has these other giant monsters, so to speak, in it. So that, I enjoyed this segment a bit. And this leads directly into uh, page 15, uh, where panel one, where we see the lizard warriors kind of on the march. And the their design reminds me a good deal of something Jack Kirby would have designed. Like the guy in the front, He's wearing uh, like, a, like, a, like a shoulder armor and a helmet, and then he's got wrist gauntlets and like a skirt made of clearly dinosaur hide. And the way that he and the way that the, the he's got the helmet is made from the, the head, so like the mouth snout comes like over his head. He looks almost like Steppenwolf, especially since it's green. But these the way that these guys look with their kind of hide armor. I could see this as being similar to something Kirby would have done on Devil Dinosaur. Don't again, don't know if it's intentional. Maybe I'm filling that in for my own personal bias, but I think it looks really good. This is reinforced down on panel three, where the leader of the Lizard Warriors is pointing, and he's got this gigantic Kirby hand right in the foreground. So it's almost as if that Trimpy is knowing that we had a Kirby creation with the FF, and now we've got an even and more. Kirby creation with Devil Dinosaur because obviously the FF was more of a collaboration uh, than Devil Dinosaur was. So he's really kind of pushing the Kirby stuff. We'll see more of that as we continue to move through the book. On to page 16, the Lizard Warriors uh, sick two of their dinosaurs on Godzilla. So we get some nice combat as they charge up the mountain at Godzilla and crash into him. Then they crash rolling down the far side of the mountain, like the end of Monster Zero, of course. Godzilla is completely in his element here. This idea that fighting to survive, this is what he knows. And again, the narration boxes uh, work towards this. Mench does a really strong job of putting over Godzilla and making him look powerful as the king of the monsters when we had spent the front half of the issue with him laid low and treated just as you know an object being toted around with no control whereas here he has total control over his situation and it even says let them send chargers at him as many as they wish for these two will quickly fail and fall let them try to claim this valley try and die for this valley has already been claimed by godzilla king of the monsters so i definitely liked this change from Godzilla being, like I said, completely ineffectual in the front half to being, if you'll pardon the expression, master of his domain in the second half. That's a nice bit of contrast, and I have to assume that uh, that bench pushed that intentionally. Uh, turning now to page 17, Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur make the scene. Once again, Trimpy, I think, is channeling Kirby, especially in the face of Moon Boy. Now, Trimpy's faces are uh, not... He doesn't use a lot of lines on faces, uh, especially on women's faces and on kids' faces. He does more more lines on men's faces. I'm not I'm not saying it's simplistic, but different artists have different ways of approaching that. Some will use more lines, and that can have good and bad effects. Trimpy's faces are a bit cleaner, uh, just in the number of lines. But with that in mind, with the amount of ink that Daniel Green puts on Moonboy's face, and then the general shape of Moonboy's face, it really looks like Jack Kirby. And then in the next panel, where we see Devil, Devil Dinosaur's got that squared off snout, 
that and, and a wide, wide body, even wider than like Godzilla is typically shown. And he's got these big, thick legs. That very much reminds me of the Jack Kirby Devil Dinosaur, especially that flat snout. That's what I always think of with the original Devil Dinosaur. And see, Devil Dinosaur to me, uh, has a very special place because I was first introduced, and I, and I may have told this story before, so please bear with me if I have, but I was first introduced to Devil Dinosaur when I was a kid. Uh, we were on vacation in train country in Pennsylvania. So we went, uh, my dad's big into model railroad and stuff like that. So we went and did a train vacation and we looked at all these huge model railroad setups and, you know, different railroad um, attractions and such. And at one point we ended up in like an antique shop and they had comics. And I remember that they, they let us get, they let my parents, let my brother and I get some comics. And I remember my brother got a couple issues of GI combat, one of which had uh, the war that time forgot. So it actually had the, the Tyrannosaurus like picking up the haunted tank <laughs> on the cover. So that, that was, that one always stuck with me. I still have that issue. It's in my box of war comics. I'm pretty sure. And then the one I got was devil dinosaur number two. And so I was just fascinated by this because it remind the bright red of devil dinosaur reminded me of the Aurora monster scenes, Tyrannosaurus model kit, which is also red, which I had in my room. My dad had built it before I was born. And then he had it. I had it in my room for a long time. Pretty sure you mean prehistoric scenes. You goofball. So that was what kind of fascinated me. So I read this comic over and over and that I was a fan of devil dinosaur before I even knew, you know, who Jack Kirby was or anything like that. So I've always liked devil because of that. And so seeing him appear here and from my memory, looking pretty close to the way Jack drew him uh, is is a real treat for me, especially seeing him teaming up with, uh, you know, fighting and then teaming up in traditional Marvel uh, fashion with Godzilla, who obviously is is the man or the lizard, as it were. Turning over now to page 19, as Godzilla breathes the fire, we get uh, Moonboy calling back some uh, Devil Dinosaur continuity as he says that uh, they are like the flames of the sky demons. Now, the sky demons were aliens who menaced Moon Boy and Devil uh, with spaceships in their original series. And they did, if I remember right, had laser beams. So this is a good callback by Mensch. And uh, so Devil Dinosaur charges into battle. It should be a big, impactful panel where they clash. And uh, panel five here, it does have a nice impact. It's got all the impact lines in the background. But the posing, unfortunately, is a little stiff. Uh, and it, Devil just kind of runs and like crashes into him with his head and the posing doesn't really sell it very well. So it diminishes the overall impact of the panel, even though from a story standpoint, it's exciting that Devil and Dinos Devil and Godzilla are going to start clashing. Uh, we turn now to pages 22 and 23, and this is the fight between Devil Dinosaur and Godzilla. And what I like is that Devil throws, you know, kind of knocks Godzilla into the lake and then immediately pounces on him and is holding him under the lake to drown him, which is pretty good strategy when you consider the fact who Devil normally fights is other dinosaurs and giant monsters, right? So he would think this makes sense. But, of course, Devil can't possibly know that Godzilla is amphibious and can easily breathe underwater. So Godzilla pounces up. Uh, he's giving him like a double Shoruken because he's got both his up, both the fists going up, uppercutting him and sending uh, devil crashing onto the uh, onto the shoreline. Uh, I like that Devil is shown to be a savage and very cunning fighter, but Godzilla is smarter. And this again continues with uh, the depiction of Godzilla in this series that he does have some intellectual capacity. And Devil had some, but I always pictured Devil as more 
uh, being directed by Moonboy. Moonboy would give him some directions, and Devil could understand that. It was almost like a boy and his dog, except his dog was a giant red dinosaur, uh, which is wonderful in its own right. Don't misunderstand me. At the top of page 23, Godzilla is grabbing Devil by the forearms and kind of forcing him down. They almost look like they're going into a collar and elbow tie-up in, like, Greco-Roman wrestling. And then he suplays him and throws him over. Uh, and then this panel here... This is panel four right at the bottom. Moonboy is trying to see if he can push a boulder down. It looks like on the bottom of the on the bottom of the hill here, we can see a smaller take of Devil and Godzilla, and they're kind of circling each other. Like they're sizing each other up to to pounce. I I really would like to have seen this go on a little bit longer, but I understand the purposes of the story. They gotta fight before they team up. But man, and and the green and the red, it just looks so the contrast is so nice, just from a visual standpoint, in this, you know, lush uh, jungle that has blues and greens and yellows and black. And then you've got these the bright green and the bright red monsters clashing. It's it's beautiful to look at. Trippy is really doing a good job handling all this. And I got to give a shout out, too, to uh, Ben Sean, because he does, he handles these colors very nicely. Because we've got all these different shades of green going on on one in one page and each one is different enough that we can keep them apart and they don't turn into a muddy mess so the visually this second half of the book i am really impressed with if i did not make that clear already over onto page 26 and we get a second splash page and what this is is we're looking down like the ridge and we see all the lizard warriors in profile as they're watching the fight um with with one guy right up front right up front in the uh, in the in the profile this, again, makes me think of Jack Kirby, because I want to say that Kirby did some layouts like this in the Fourth World stuff, where he'd use a splash page just to show groups of characters, not necessarily action, per se, but just to give a big depiction of the character, and he'd go in with all the details. And Trippy does kind of level on the details here. All of the Lizard Warriors are all wearing, uh, you know, reptilian hide armor. The guy in front, you can see the individual scales and little puck marks and the nostrils and everything else called out. And even the far, far in the back, you can see Moonboy with the, you know, the big uh, starburst around him because he's shocked as he sees him peeking around the boulder to see the Lizard Warriors. So this is, uh, and then down in the bottom, we've also got Devil and Godzilla clashing once again. So there's a lot of information in this splash page, even if it's not extremely action-oriented. You know, it's it's more of a character piece, but it does convey a lot of information. And frankly, this one is better than the splash page that was used on page one to open the story. Oh, over on to page seven. Uh, Moonboy, having seen the Lizard Warriors, rushes up to Devil and Godzilla and tells them to stop fighting. And Godzilla sees Moonboy and thinks of Rob Takaguchi. Well, I guess we needed some reason for Godzilla to stop fighting, so let's just move along. Uh, this leads us to the final page of the story, which is page 30, and is our third splash page. And we are looking kind of from the ground level up at the, the back of Godzilla and like a profile of Devil Dinosaur. Uh, Moonboy is right behind Devil as we see the Lizard Warriors streaming down into the valley with their weapons drawn, ready to fight. And uh, this is the best of the three splash pages in this book, far and away. I mean, it looks, again, we don't get full shots of either Godzilla or Devil, but we shouldn't because they're so large relative to the human characters. But you get this really good idea of scale. And, uh, you know, it looks, it, it, this, this really looks, this looks almost cinematic to say they have shooting the camera, air quotes up to the mic, through Godzilla's legs to see the warrior streaming down. 
and, you know, Moonboy to the side. Just really nicely composed splash page. Uh, no offense to the Lizard Warriors, but they are out of their weight class here, both literally and figuratively. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, so that's how our story ends. Now, as I said, definitely a tale of two halves. Uh, the first part of the story to me, it's fairly perfunctory. It's like the mop-up from the beginning of an issue of Fantastic Four before they go on to tackle their next adventure. We see this a few times. Again, shout out to the Fantastic Cast. I'll point this out that sometimes an adventure will end in, um, you know, and, and then and one issue and the next issue, the first couple of pages will be the mop-up and then something else will happen and they'll go off in a different direction. And, you know, I guess that's okay, but this book's called Godzilla. It's not called Fantastic Four. The back half, however, is all action. It's grin-inducing to me to see Godzilla and Devil Dinosaur tangling, as I said, two of my all-time favorite comic monsters. Uh, there's several apparent nods to Jack Kirby in the Devil segments, which, uh, you know, those appeal to me as a big Jack Kirby fan. So really, even though only half this issue is really holds my interest, it's a pretty good half. Now, I'm hoping to get a more comprehensive story uh, the next time out, as we are in the home stretch of the series. And as I said, even though I was disappointed with the front half, the back half really impressed me with this. So overall, I'd say this issue was a success, uh, even if the front was a little iffy for me. Uh, as always, if you want to read the story, it is collected in Essential Godzilla. Now, the bullpen bulletins this time out, uh, Stan's soapbox actually hypes the return of Steve Ditko, who, uh, as, as I'm recording this, has recently passed away. So, uh, you know, one of the comics greats has, uh, has, has moved on. And, you know, hopefully he's in some strange other world where he continues to, uh, uh, to concoct crazy new stories for everyone. Uh, but in any event, uh, Lee hyping the return of Ditko. Now, Ditko's work for Marvel in this era primarily was on Machine Man, which, again, is a little interesting because that's one that... You know, Machine Man was a Kirby book, and then Ditko kind of took it over. So it's just interesting to have the two, um, you know, founders, you know, guys really responsible for founding the Marvel Universe as we know it, who then left and then came back, both worked on the same title. Ditko would also do uh, a few odds and ends here and there. He did some, um, Marvel, did some Marvel premiere. They did an issue with Daredevil, a few oddball things, but primarily was Machine Man is what uh, I think of Ditko at this time when he came back to Marvel. He was still doing his stuff for Charlton. Uh, as well at this time, you know, you know, Dicko did what he wanted to do. I, I don't think anybody can argue that good, bad or indifferent, whether they feel about the man's work. He kind of did the work he wanted to for the most part by this point in his career. Uh, the bullpen bulletins themselves, uh, mostly the comings and goings of the, uh, Marvel bullpen. Uh, some folks leaving, some folks coming back. They, uh, talk again about Mary Jo Duffy being the, getting the full-time writing gig on Power Man and Iron Fist, which they teased last month with the mystery writer. So, uh, very nice. That married that D Duffy's run on Power Man and Iron Fist, I remember being really good. Uh, for a book that was always kind of middling from a sales uh, standpoint, Power Man and Iron Fist had some really good uh, creative teams on it that, that did some good stuff on that series, which ran, you know, you got to remember, Power Man and Iron Fist ran for 75 issues because, you know, they, they, they picked up Power Man's numbering and then it ran from 50 to 125. So that's a pretty good run for essentially a B-level book. Uh, Godzilla Grams. A uh, few letters this time. No one, uh, no names I recognize, but I do want to call a couple of them out. The first letter is, or excuse me, the second letter is from Vince Bazemore in Winter Haven, Florida. And first off, he lives on Xerxes Avenue. That had to drive people crazy trying to write that out. But anyway, um, he, um, he, he talks about that he is, uh, that he was upset because he missed the first two issues. 
And the response to that, they talk about that, and he, and he wants Red Ronan to come back, excuse me. And so the response from, I'm guessing this is, it's Al Milgram, either Al Milgram or Mary Jo Duffy, one of them's writing the, uh, the responses. They talk about that they're gonna bring back Red Ronan, which we'll eventually see in the pages of Avengers. But then they, they, they tease the upcoming Shogun Warriors book and say, if you like Godzilla, please read Shogun Warriors. And then at the bottom of the letters page is the little house ad for, that's right, the Shogun Warriors. Uh, we saw this house ad previously. And again, it does specifically call out Doug Mensch and Herb Trimpey. So I think that's a nice bit of synergy, even if we did it backwards here on the show. And then the third letter is from Frank Tyndall. And he talks about how that Godzilla is actually his favorite comic because he's loved dinosaurs and monsters since he was three years old. And I thought the response here was pretty good uh, because it does it gives some insight into uh, the two main creative forces for not only this book, but also Shogun Warriors. Because the response goes, glad you're so happy, Frank. And maybe it's because you share a few early loves with Doug. The young Mr. Mensch was also crazy about monsters and dinosaurs and being half Scottish, especially real-life combinations of the two, such as the Loch Ness Monster, as well as comic books, Natch, Egyptology, Amerindians, Flying Saucers, Horror Movies, and Vikings. Sheesh. Who knows where the devil-may-care lad might have ended up if girls' music and writing hadn't finally come along. On the other hand, Happy Herb Trimpey grew up a confirmed techno-freak, dreaming and drawing spiffy planes, rockets, and other nuts and bolts whatnot, as witness his fabulous depictions of the new hyper-helicarrier behemoth, and its, attendance, and its attendant gizmos, extensions, and appurtenances. P.S. Herbie says he also liked girls' music and drawing. Ain't some symmetry wonderful? So, from that, it's pretty clear that Doug Mensch, who had a childhood love of dinosaurs and monsters and aliens and flying saucers and horror movies, and Herb Trimpey, who loved technology and machines... They seem like a really good fit for Godzilla and Shogun Warriors, considering what are these books about? Monsters, machines, aliens, technology. Okay. I mean, it's pretty much, you know, that, that says to me that these guys were the right fit for these and that they had the right mindset when they were approaching these licensed books to, uh, to make them entertaining and not just, uh, you know, push something out the door just to fulfill the licensing obligations. So, uh, overall, I, I like this one. Like I said, the front half, uh, didn't really do much, but the back half really did. So that, that really, uh, impressed me as a reader. What do you guys think? You have any opinions on Godzilla number 21, Godzilla and Devil Dinosaur? It's that, that's a Marvel classic right there, right? Why don't you write in? Let me know. Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to finish up the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren of the Rad Adventures Network. We're a married couple who enjoy great stories of all kinds, including adventures, mysteries, science fiction, and fantasy. Please join us for a variety of podcasts focused on a range of pop culture topics. Trekker Talk is about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. It's a blend of classic sci-fi adventures and noir mysteries set in a retro future. Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the comic Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. Warlord Worlds covers the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and The Legion of Superheroes. Sensational Sluice, where we talk about favorite mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. Fantastic Fantasies, where we share our favorite fantasy films and books. 
and Amazing Adventures, where we discuss action-packed adventure stories. Listen on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit RadAdventuresNetwork.com to find all of our shows and links to our social media pages. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it is time for a little bit of listener feedback. So if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, or you can reach me on Facebook or Twitter. Just listen to the outro to the show, and you can find out how to get in touch with me. Uh, our first email tonight comes from good friend of the show, Robert Ludwig, and the subject is Been So Long, and Robert writes, Luke, wow, it has been a long time since I sent an email to my favorite Daikaiju podcast. Okay, it is my only Daikaiju podcast, but it is still my favorite. You know what? I have often said that Earth Destruction Directive is the best Daikaiju podcast on the Two True Freaks Network, and I stand by that. <laughs> Robert continues, I will admit that while I like Godzilla in movie form, I am not super familiar with many of the other monsters until I hear them on your podcast. Then, between your explanation and a bit of research, I get to learn more. However, as great as the movie or TV show coverage is, my favorite part is always your coverage of the comics. Whether it is the current Godzilla coverage, the Shogun Warriors coverage, or the comics covered prior to that, I just really enjoy that part of the show. I often get a picture in my head from your description, which makes the comic come alive for me. It also made me want to see if I can find, if I can get a few for myself, meaning the cheap boxes, a la Professor Allen. Well, short email for tonight. Just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate your coverage of all things Daikaiju but most especially the comics. Keep them stomping. Robert Ludwig, Nevada, Iowa. Robert, thank you so much for writing in. You know, the the the, the coverage of comics on this show started almost by accident. And it was because I was at a local comic show here in Greenville, South Carolina. And I happened to cross Shogun Warriors number one. And I didn't even know that Marvel had done a Shogun Warriors comic at that point. And so I saw it and I said, oh, I got to buy this, right? And so that started me doing research about the Shogun Warriors comic. And I thought, you know, I'd like to cover this. It's like, but, you know, I don't want to just cover that. I mean, I, I cover all the other stuff. So that was what kind of led me to do in the format where we cover a feature and then a comic. And I've really enjoyed that because we get kind of multiple segments going on. And it's been a lot of fun doing the comics because, you know, some of my favorite comics podcasts, and I've talked about, uh, I mentioned them twice already. The Fantastic Cast is one. Uh, you know, my my good friend, the late, great Sean Engel, who is still much missed, is just one of the guys. Uh, they're index shows. And so they run through a long run of comics from beginning to end. And I've always thought, man, it'd be neat to do something like that. But I, I just have a hard time, you know, sticking to the schedule that those guys do. So doing these shorter runs of comics, doing Shogun Warriors, doing Marvel Godzilla, uh, it's allowed me to do that kind of index format and do that type of show, but on a smaller scale. And that's been a lot of fun for me to, to cover. And I, I get a lot of positive feedback, and yours is very much appreciated, that, that you folks out there seem to enjoy that as well. So I'm hoping to keep that going. Um, I'm not sure where we're going to go after this. I know that once we finish Marvel Godzilla, we're going to pick up some of the additional appearances of the Marvel Godzilla's uh, characters, including Godzilla and Red Ronin, in other Marvel books. Uh, after that, I have a couple ideas of what we're going to cover. Nothing firmed up yet, but I I'm glad that you appreciate that. And I hope to keep the comics coverage going uh, on this show because there are plenty of comics to cover that feature monsters. I wish Marvel would put out a essential or an epic 
of their old of their old Atlas books. Just pick like Tales to Astonish or something and do just all the monster stories from that. I would cover that in a heartbeat. I'd just go through the whole dang thing, you know. And uh, you know, Professor Allen he gave me a copy of an is- a couple issues of uh, Monsters Unleashed, uh, which has a lot of the old Atlas monsters. So maybe we'll talk about that at some point in the in the future on this show. So thank you very much, uh, Robert, for writing in. Hope you continue to enjoy the show. And our second email tonight comes from loyal listener Jack Bon, and his subject is Between Frankenstein and Kong. And Jack writes, I may still write about Tokyo SOS. I've been distracted from my project of rewatching, or in the case of a lot of the Heisei and all the Millennium series, watching the Godzilla movies in order that I was in the middle of low these many years ago when I found your podcast. How long ago was that? <laughs> I remember the only way to get Godzilla vs. Megalon on disc was to rent the MST3K version from Netflix. Okay, history time. This podcast started in 2011. We are in our seventh year of operation here uh, on our uh, Destruction Directive. The vast majority of that has, of course, been on the Two True Freaks Network. The first few months, for those of you that may remember, were actually not hosted on Two True Freaks. I was hosting them on archive.org and uh, at the time, and then... Um, Chris Honeywell, one of the Two True Freaks OGs, he approached me because they were looking to kind of expand uh, the, the amount of shows they had on the network, and I was already doing the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror with Chris Honeywell and the Hair Metal Hero on Two True Freaks, and they so said, well, do you want to bring your show over here? And I said, absolutely. So uh, the rest is history. But yes, it's been about seven and a half years that this has been going on, which is astounding. It really is. I, I thought for sure that I'd be chased off the internet airwaves after a few months. But no, they let me keep doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. So, And yes, I do remember when Godzilla vs. Megalon, you could only get it uh, that net, from Netflix because you weren't supposed to have it. And I remember, uh, let's just say I remember renting it from Netflix and watching it and then not mailing it to Netflix, but mailing it to my brother and let him do something with it and then mailing it on. Let's just keep it at that, okay? Uh, Jack continues, I must have gotten to GMK, poor Baragon, last time. I just watched it and it seemed familiar. Also timely, with the trailer of Godzilla, King of the Monsters, suggesting it will also spell out the metaphor they're using. And that's a good point. Uh, you know, monsters as these guardian beasts or whatever. Uh, so, you know, I think that the, that, I said this the last time, that King of the Monsters trailer did a good job of teasing a lot of stuff without just spilling all its guts, as a lot of modern trailers are, are apt to do. So let's hope it continues on that trend. Uh, Jack continues, back when I rented Son of Godzilla, I sat down to watch with some trepidation, but I found it to be much better than I was expecting. Turns out I was expecting Godzilla's revenge, but that's another episode. And you're not the only one. My brother said the same thing to me. I've had a few other people say that. I was like, son of Godzilla, that's the one with the little kid, right? It's like, no, that's Godzilla's revenge. But Godzilla's revenge was on TV a lot more than son of Godzilla. And both feature Minya in heavy, uh, you know, uh, a lot. So it, it's understandable that there'd be some confusion there. Jack continues, I like it better than son of Kong. Kong Jr. is cuter. Manila is what my dad used to call, quote, so ugly he's cute. But Little G has a better movie, a better monster movie, but also better structured as a regular or date movie. Of course, for cinematic sons, it would take a lot to beat Son of Frankenstein. Yeah, I'll grant you that one. <laughs> I, I like Son of Kong uh, because I saw it as a little kid. Uh, my dad had a copy of it very early on, and so I saw it as a little kid. But yeah, Son of Kong is, is kind of a cheapie. It, it, you know, it, it and Godzilla Raids again, to me, always go together. Uh, now that I think about them. Uh, but yeah, I think Sonic Godzilla is a lot better than, than it really needs to be, frankly. I, I think that was kind of my main takeaway from watching the film. Son of, God, Son of Frankenstein's a good movie, too. I, I had a conversation recently where we were talking about, like, uh, after Son, you get Ghost, 
meets the wolf and ghost and meets the wolfman and then house of Frankenstein. It's like, well, house of Frankenstein is like, okay, I can see where they're, they're trying to just cheap it out and do a monster mash, but it hangs together better than, than ghost or meets the wolfman in a lot of ways. And sun is, sun is really good. So I can see the, the gap there, but anyway, Jack continues. It really says something about how far we in are into a daikaiju world when man sized bugs are just one more thing to complain about. Amen, brother. I've been reading a book of, 50-year predictions from 1968, and weather control was a big thing. Mentioned in the future weapons chapter, as well as getting a chapter of its own. That's very interesting to note, Jack. So yeah, it looks like the idea of using weather as a weapon was a uh, something that was on people's minds in the uh, late 60s in the Cold War. So good catch there, and one more little checkbox for Sekizawa's uh, script for Son of Godzilla. The Godzilla comic seems to be ringing all the changes of size in this story. We've had him so small that the everyday world is a threat. I wonder why they didn't go full Incredible Shrinking Man and have Godzilla fight spiders and insects. Could they have wanted not to offend Toho by appearing to use Spiga and Gamantis without clearance? I don't think Toho gave one <laughs> one red you-know-what about what they were doing in this comic. Um, I, I, I would have seen if Godzilla was on the loose in New York, he would have fought a giant cockroach if he was going to fight a bug, I would think, especially in the late 70s. As it was, the rat also made sense. That's such a New York stereotype, the sewer rats. You know, I guess he could have also fought one of the giant alligators, but, you know, the Daredevil movie told us those were just a myth. As an aside, when, where, and why were those buttons that identify the monsters on products developed? Those little buttons or badges or logos, those are actually their co the Toho's copyright icons. So, on officially licensed works, they put those little copyrights to show that uh, that's their, that, that's their, showing that that's their copyright notice for the use of their intellectual property in that uh, film or comic or book or whatever. They were developed in the eighties. I'm pretty sure I try, I did some research on this. Uh, there's not any hard and fast information that I could find about when exactly they started being deployed. Um, but I want to say it was in the eighties. And part of this was that the, because Toho, um, their works are exported all over the world. This was a visual thing to show that it was an official product rather than having to worry about individual things being translated into different countries. You know that Godzilla, Rodan, Mothra, King Ghidra, Icon, that's the same. And it always is in English. It's not in Japanese. It's in English Romanized letters on the bottom of each of those icons. And so that will appear anywhere. And so you can see that it's a visual thing right away to know that it's a licensed official use of the character. And Toho is so um, diligent in their policing of their intellectual property, it would make sense that they'd obviously pay very close attention. Um, what was it? Voltage Films put out um, uh, a movie uh, a couple of years ago with a girl, like she'd fall asleep and she'd, you know, when she was sleeping, she dreamed she was a giant monster and she was actually controlling the giant monster and they really implied it to be Godzilla and Toho sued the pants off of him. So <laughs> it's like, you don't want to mess with Toho's lawyers. I mean, they are, they are uh, a tough group of guys and gals from what I understand. Um, Back into Jack's email. Uh, Godzilla's passed through the man-sized monster phase and is now as large as a piece of some construction equipment. Big, but on a human scale, where you believe the thing has a chance against him more than Hercules had against a full-size monster. And that's a good point as well. I remember saying that. that And, and I think Jack called, kind of called me to task a little bit on that. Uh, that I was not impressed that Hercules could pick up Godzilla uh, out in San Francisco way back in issue number three, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so, but yeah, the thing fighting a, you know, 20 foot tall, 25 foot tall Godzilla, I can buy that. The thing fights monsters that size, but to fight a, you know, hundreds of foot tall 
monster. I don't care if you are a demigod. I, I never bought that, and I really don't. So I think Jack makes a really good point here. And of course, now he's the same height as Devil Dinosaur, you know, for convenience, so I don't have to break out that monsters are as tall as they are, because, again, Jack got a little uh, sideways with me <laughs> the last time I used that little bit of uh, Daikaiju Otaku lo uh, logic. Uh, Jack continues, thanks for being an experienced guide to the Museum of Natural History for this issue and to New York City overall. I gather that the Bronx is up and the batteries down, Jack. Uh, thanks for putting a little bit of Sinatra there at the end. Yes, as a matter of fact, Bronx is up and the battery is down. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time talking about Battery Park and the financial district in those uh, issues where Godzilla was in New York. So uh, you are on board with that. Uh, thank you very much, Jack, for writing in. Always appreciate to get your emails. Uh, I never quite know what to expect because uh, you, you do bring a lot of um, insight and different points of view to your emails, so they're always appreciated, as is all of the listener feedback. So I please, if you got uh, something you want to share with us, please send it in. I'd love to read listener feedback here on the show. All right, uh, now we come to the point where we have to look forward, as always, and see what we are going to be covering next time on the show. Well, we are going to be taking a break from movies and TV for a little while, and we're going to get back into the world of games, which we haven't touched in a while. We're going to be taking a look at not one, but two different card-based giant monster games. The first of which is the licensed game Godzilla Stomp, uh, which is kind of a Trump-taking uh, game. And we're also going to be taking a look at Ape Games RAR, which is also sort of a Trump-taking game, oddly enough. Both of these are a lot of fun. I played both of them uh, several times and, and really enjoyed them. Uh, they have some really interesting stuff we're going to talk about as far as game mechanic and, uh, you know, just playing games in general with giant monsters. We're also going to be taking a look, of course, at the next issue of Marvel Comics Godzilla, which is issue number 22, as Godzilla and Devil Dinosaur uh, will have to apparently team up against the Lizard Warriors to see if they can hold the Valley of the Flame. And uh, they did tease us a super surprising shock ending, so I guess we'll see what happens there. We'll also have any new news developments on uh, the Ultraman on Netflix, Godzilla King of the Monsters, the third uh, Godzilla anime, anything that comes out that has to do with giant monsters or, uh, or giant robots or giant robots fighting against giant monsters. <laughs> we will try to cover it uh, here. We'll, of course, have your feedback as always. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone once again for downloading and listening to the show. Everyone is welcome here at Earth Destruction Directive, and that will always be true. So thank you once again. Uh, please come back next time to take a look at a couple of uh, uh, Giant Monster Games and Godzilla number 22. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, 
TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.